0: The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning to study in the word of God. We are in Romans chapter 16, and I do not know whether we're going to finish up our Romans review this morning or it'll be Wednesday night. It will see how that all works itself out. We've got material to cover So I suspect that it will be Wednesday night, but we'll see. I'm not in control of that. The Holy Spirit is. So uh, we will begin picking back up uh, in Romans chapter 16 here in just a moment. But let's take a moment for silent prayer. First, we do need to make sure we're prepared for the study of the word of God. This entails confession of sin, if necessary, as well as humility, because without humility, we are unteachable. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your blessings, all the provisions that made it possible for us to gather here this morning. We thank you for this opportunity, not only to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but the opportunity to spend this time studying the truth of your word. We pray that through the ministry of your word, as we dwell upon what we learn, we would become more Christ-like every single day. And grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right. If I remembered the slide correctly, and that's always a big if. And I did. All right. So this is a new section. We're in the concluding remarks, which began in chapter 15. And have continued on here into chapter 16. And we're looking at a little section with a couple of verses on encouragement. Verses 19 and 20 in chapter 16. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I deeply desire for you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Let's look at some principles with regard to that. It is an incredible blessing when a congregation has a good reputation. It's talked about in. Various uh, verses of the scripture in Romans 1.8, Paul says to begin with, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So there's uh, Paul giving a little encouragement, if you will, to the Roman church saying their their reputation for their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. It's something that people are thankful for when a local church has that kind of a reputation First Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Uh, And that's a passage I believe is talking about being rescued from the tribulation because we're waiting for his son from heaven. That's the rapture event. And then uh, he's going to rescue us from that wrath. We don't have to be part of the tribulation. The church will be spared. It is important for us to be wise when it comes to good and innocent when it comes to evil. Uh, And so do we now when I say that wise when it comes to good and innocent when it comes to evil, does that mean that we should. Hide in the corner and be completely ignorant about evil? Of course not. We're supposed to know about what's going on. I, I, I dare you to be unaware of what's going on in the world around us today. It's all being shoved in our faces. Uh, and so uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to not know what kind of things are going on. But we're supposed to be innocent in regard to evil. Uh, Matthew, hold on a second. Matthew 10:16. Behold, I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, the idea of being shrewd as serpents is that you would be aware of what is going on in the world system. You have to be aware of what's going on in the world system, but at the same time, innocent of all of that, right? You're not participating with them. You're aware of what's going on, but you're not participating in what they're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was going to say innocent of participation. Yeah, you're not participating in what they're doing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, we're going to compare that with Jeremiah 4, 22. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Be infants in regard to evil. In other words, you're, you you want to be somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of experience with engaging in evil activities, right? You don't want to grow in, in your uh, ability to participate in evil. You want to grow in your thinking, but, in regards to evil, be infants, and in your thinking be mature in jeremiah four twenty two it says uh, "For my people are foolish, they know me not; they are stupid children, they have no understanding, they are shrewd to do evil, but to good, excuse me, but to do good, they do not know now that's not that is not a verse that you want to ever have applying to you right that's clearly he's talking about his people Israel but think about that again if that's something that was said for example of the church today if God were to to say this sort of thing about the church in general today my people are foolish they know me not they're stupid children have no understanding they're shrewd to do evil but to do good they do not know that would be just a really huge rebuke Uh, and so but I think if you look at the church in general it's probably pretty close to true where you have a lot of people in the church that are participating in the evil. They're shrewd with regard to you think doing things that are evil, but to do good. And by the way, that's to do good in this sense is not just something that's perceived as good, but something that's actually divine good, something that God has said to be good. That's the other problem we have going on today is people invent their own idea of what's good and what's not right in order to do this, we must be mature enough to distinguish between the two. You had to know I was going to this verse, Hebrews 5:14. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So, and I believe it's interesting who's do, who is it that's doing the training here? That's the Holy Spirit, right? As we understand the things of the Scripture, as we dwell upon and process what we've learned, as the Holy Spirit helps us to have a clear understanding of what we've learned from God's Word, the Holy Spirit Himself is training us to discern good and evil. And when it says their senses trained, I believe that the Holy Spirit is an active part of that. And when I, where I go with that is if you're walking by means of the Spirit, and as you mature in the faith, I believe you become even more sensitive to the idea of what's good and what's evil. You begin to be be more able to distinguish between the two. You're picking up on things that are evil that you might not have even noticed as an infant in Christ. But now you're starting to notice these things that are that are evil. Well, that's that's a ministry of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you as well. So if you're running around in carnality, should you expect to have this capacity? I wouldn't think you would. You would be in the flesh. And so if you're in the flesh, uh, you're you're uh, indulging the. Passing pleasures of the flesh, anyway, and so you're not really in the mode where your your radar is active. You know what I mean? You don't you don't have an active radar where you can distinguish uh, between what's good and what's evil. You're you're walking around in sin. So, this is something that we have when we're walking in the light, when we're in fellowship, when we're walking by means of the Spirit. Just plug in all of those terms that we have for a believer that's walking in a worthy manner, because uh, at that point our senses will be uh, engaged. Actively with the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, and we're going to have this, that sensitivity to what's good and what's evil. Hopefully, that makes sense. That would include all your sins, yeah, all your senses. Yeah, you would you would have uh, basically everything is everything is fully engaged to uh, to perceive what is good and what is what is evil. Yeah, everything is engaged in that. And I think you know there's there's a there is also that that still small voice of the Holy Spirit Himself who can speak to us with regard to those things. I I don't know about you, but I mean, there's been situations where um, there was there was actually a tangible presence of evil in a certain in certain situations. And it wasn't something that I could definitely observe necessarily with my eyes or hear with my ears. I believe that was a conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Terry and I went to a, a wedding years ago and it was to uh to a, a guy that I knew for a guy that I knew from work and it was an Indian wedding and just with the things that were happening in there I mean we could just sense that we were in the presence of evil and so we were we were prayed up I can tell you that we were we were keeping our prayer ministry going we know that Jesus Christ will one day crush Satan's head that's going to happen right and and it, and when you when you view it in the terms of the timetable of eternity it's going to be soon right that's that's going to happen uh genesis three fifteen, and i will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel bruise you on the head is really the idea of crushing now i can make an argument by the way that that crushing really already took place at golgotha that when christ went to the cross that satan was already crushed at that point but there we know there's a final blow that yet that is yet to be delivered amen Right, Satan is still running around, and there's fallen angels, and there's still all, can, all kinds of angelic activity that is anti-God. All you have to do is uh, open up your uh, browser and read the news headlines, and you can see that going on. And, and that's going to continue, by the way, all the way until we get to the very end of the millennium, although Satan and I believe the fallen angels with them are going to be uh, locked up in the abyss during the millennial kingdom. But they will, they will be released They will be released at the end of the millennial kingdom. And at that point in time, the final blow will be delivered and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so at that point, that's the final that you want to look at it this way. That is the that is the ultimate fulfillment of what has already been accomplished at the cross. He will be thrown in the lake of fire. Yeah, I don't even know what it's going to be like. Uh, we, don't, we have a little bit of a picture of what it's going to be like when, the, when they're released from the abyss after the, you know, at the end of the thousand years. But I don't think we understand the full magnitude of it. It's going, to be, it's going to be crazy, and that's why there's going to be a rebellion. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And that's what I was just talking about. I think the fallen angels are included with that. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Now, these are martyrs during the tribulation uh, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I also believe that as part of that, that resurrection that takes place right there, the, all the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected at that time. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now that's talking about the, the second resurrection, which is the resurrection unto wickedness, the uh, unbelievers. This is, this is the first resurrection. That was the one that was described above. The resurrection of the martyrs and the Old Testament saints. Blessed and holy is the one who has, par, has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, from the abyss, which we just read about. And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together for, and it says for the war here, but remember... We've already been told in scriptures that there will not be any more war. Uh, I believe this is a big rebellion is what takes place here. That would be a better translation. Gather them together for the rebellion. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. See, I believe this is like what we see in terms of like... um, Kind of, kind of a, a a small picture of that would be kind of like what happened to Riley Gaines when she made her speech, and all those protesters came up and surrounded her and had her where she couldn't uh, she couldn't go anywhere, and they had to usher her into a room to get her protected. I believe is what ended up happening in that situation. But this is that's like a small picture of what this is going to be like. They're going to come up and they're going to surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. They're going to think that they're going to basically come up and, and just by sheer numbers overwhelm the whole thing and then and then what happens fire came down from heaven and devoured them Poof! god took care of it right? and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever so don't think that the you know the satan is just ceases to exist he continues to exist in torment for all of eternity uh, this will happen soon when measured in eschatological terms, and that's what I was talking about in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. It says, but do not let this one fact escape you, escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord of the promise is not delaying, as some people evaluate delay, but instead is patient toward you, not desiring for any to perish, but for all to arrive at repentance. If we look at the rapture event, you know, why is the church still going on almost... 2,000 years later, why hasn't the rapture already happened? Why, you know, why is God delaying? And then, of course, some people are going to say, well, that's because it's not really ever going to happen. They're going to throw in those doubts and try to get you to doubt. And uh, this is why this verse is important. He's not delaying, as some people evaluate delay, and instead is patient toward you, not desiring for any to perish, but for all to arrive at repentance. In other words, every day that passes, more people come to faith. There's more people that are part of the church, more people that will not be part of the tribulation. Imagine the blessing that that is. as someone comes to faith right now and they will be rescued from that wrath to come, they will go up with us in the rapture event and not have to be on earth for the tribulation. In the meantime, it is the grace of God which sustains us. And, of course, 1 Corinthians 15.10, you had to know that was coming. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. This is kind of, this should be our mantra. This should be this should be a good description of, of our lives and our mental attitude. Really, that's the thing you want to think about. This is how we should view things. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Instead of thinking about who you are and what you know, why you're so wonderful, you should be thinking I'm I'm not wonderful at all. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And it says right there, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. That really should be the way we understand things. That should be uh, our mental attitude of humility. Second Corinthians 9 and 8, and God is able to make all grace, and this is one of those verses I love with the alls and the everys. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Right. So this verse is saying that God in his grace, you know, the previous verse, first Corinthians fifteen ten, taught us that we are what we are by the grace of God. And apart from that, we're nothing. But this one then says not only we'll have all sufficiency. Right. In other words, we will have everything that we need, everything that we need. And notice it says then you so that you may have an abundance For every good deed. So, what those good deeds are? Those are the Ephesians two ten, the good works which God prepared beforehand, so that you would walk in them. Right? The work assignments that God has for us. You will not only have sufficiency, which this verse says, but you'll have an abundance for all of that. Whatever work assignments that God has given you to do, you will have an abundance in His grace. You'll have an abundance to do that, and it's all about His grace. Don't for a second think that it's about you. It's about his, him and his grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, which many people have pondered what that might be, but none of us really know what that is. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. And I think one of the keys about that is, is if we are weak and yet then the power of God is on display in and through us, then where is our where is our arrogance? Where where is it that we get all arrogant about what's going on? Because it's clearly it's not us because we're weak and the strength that we have comes from him. And that's very important because it's so easy for us to get caught up in uh, in things and start to think it's all about what we're doing and we can get arrogant about that. All right. Next section here, verses twenty one through twenty four. Further greetings. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Scipiter, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius. Host to me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. Then we have this little verse at the end here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's in brackets like that, if you'll notice, because that means it's a text question. It means it's not certain that it should be there. It could be that one of the copyists along the way added that verse because there's verses similar to that elsewhere. And just threw that verse in. And it's be, it then became copied into copies upon copies upon copies. But if you go back and do text analysis on it, critical analysis, you can come to the conclusion: well, maybe that doesn't belong there. Now we ended up leaving it in there uh, because I'm I believe it probably could, it probably was in the original text uh, because Paul has said this sort of thing more than once. So it's very very possible that was in the original text. And I ask you the question though: is this does the meaning of this particular section change if it's there or if it's not there no because it's uh it's something that paul has expressed multiple times within this letter anyway so it's not like you change the meaning whether it's there or not there but that's why those brackets are there because uh it's a text question now notice we had the greetings earlier uh we had in the earlier greetings what we had is a sending out greetings to particular people greet so and so greet so and you know greet Prisca and Aquila greet all these greetings, send my greetings to all these people. Now we have a list of people who are sending their greetings to the Roman church, right? So it's still, it's another section of greetings, but it's the opposite way. It's, It's greetings from these different people to the saints at the church in Rome. Let's look at some principles. Yeah. Earlier in the letter, we learned about Paul's heart when he asked the believers in Rome to send his greetings to a number of people. That's what I was just talking about. But here we have a number of Paul's companions sending their greetings to the believers in Rome. Among those was Paul's amanuensis. Anybody know what that is? What's an amanuensis for this letter who sent his greeting? Yeah, he's the one who actually wrote it down. Paul dictated. He's the one who wrote it all down. He's the uh, yeah, sort of like a secretary, except it's specific in this regard with with uh, in this regard uh, regarding the writing down of something that, uh, of someone who pens something for someone else. That's what amanuensis is. So um, that some people, you know, try, get all up in a nod about that because they say, well, it says he wrote the letter. Well, he's the one who put the words, you know, the pen to parchment, if you will. But he's not the one who wrote the letter. Ultimately, who wrote the letter? The Holy Spirit, actually, but Paul is the one who was who was dictating it to the amanuensis. Yes, sir. Would that be like a scribe? No, a scribe is something different. A scribe is someone whose uh, whose job is to uh, specifically make copies of the scrolls uh, for for the distribution of them. They would sit, for instance, if you look at your Old Testament scribes, they would sit around in a room. And they would have the scrolls, and they would go in, and they would make be make, diligently making a copy of the scroll so it could be distributed. And then those individuals would um, double-check each other. They also had someone who kind of managed them, if you will, that would overlook them, make sure they were what they were doing was correct. They had all sorts of – just like, for example, when you have uh, – like the, the translation I use is the New American Standard, which was done by the Lockman Foundation. And when they would do a translation like that, they would have – People that would oversee that whole process. And so if a word, if a word is translated a particular way, a Greek word, they would try to translate it that way throughout, unless there was a good reason not to. And if a translator came along and wanted to do something different with a word in one particular passage, they would, they would, they would get together and talk about it and say, okay, well, here's why. And so on and so forth. When it came to making the copies, like I'm talking about, they were really careful to make sure they didn't leave things out. Uh, they were careful in terms of, uh, Uh, how how they did later on by the way not or not in the early text but later on uh, how they did the vowel pointings and that sort of thing because remember vowel pointings were not around originally it was just consonants that's the only thing you had in Hebrew but these these were these were individuals that were that were in to make copies of the copies of the transcripts for distribution yes So did John have an amanuensis? I don't believe it's there's anything. I'd have to go back and look and see if he mentions one. I don't think one is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Um, he could have, and just it wasn't mentioned. Um, he was pretty old at that point, right? He was pretty old at the point where the, the, Re, the book of Revelation was written. So, And by the way, it wasn't that long before that book was written that he wrote the gospel of John. It was around the same time, just a, just a, a few short years before that. Uh, you know, the three uh gospels matthew mark and luke were all written around the same time period uh roughly but then the the gospel of john was written much later around 90 or so a.d uh so uh, but did he have uh did he have an amanuensis for for the writing of the gospel of john perhaps in revelation i don't know that's a good question i'd have to look into that but maybe you know but that it doesn't it doesn't doesn't change the validity of what was written it's just uh just a good, was a good question. Paul regularly used an amanuensis to record his letters, but they were typically not identified. And so that's why that's why reason I mentioned that with regard to John is that Paul didn't always identify the one who wrote for him. Uh, but it was it was known uh, that he did not he often did not write them do the actual writing of the letter. And in fact, in some cases at the end of the letter, he would write something in his own hand uh, so that they would know that it was that this was from him. And uh, but he he would only write one or two little sentences. Somebody else had written the rest of it. Yeah. Here, Tertius is not only identified, but he notably sent sent his greetings to the Roman church. So it's important is, is as I, and I, I I think about this and I, I I wonder, did he know them? Did he did he have a relationship with them or was it more? Uh, something where um, he was moved by them. He, I think he was well known by them, or otherwise it wouldn't have meant anything, right? If he, if Tertius sends his greetings to the church in Rome and they don't know who he is, they're going to go, uh, who? <laughs> you know, who is that? So I think it indicates that he was well known by the believers in Rome. But did he know them in terms of what? Had he been to Rome? Had he been to that church? Did he know individuals there? I don't know that for sure. I think he was, I think at a minimum, he was moved by the letter itself. You can only imagine, imagine being this individual that's writing this down. You know, I mean, think about, think about the blessing it would have been to have been taking that dictation and writing these things down, not only learning all these amazing (laughs) doctrines of the faith, but, uh, you know, Paul has a lot to say about the believers in Rome as part of this as well. And so what an incredible blessing that would have been. But clearly, I think, you know, he was known by them or else it wouldn't have made sense to make the comment. Uh, verse 24 gives us an example of text that is added by the copyist during the copying process. I think it's possible that that's the case. We left it in there because, I, like I said, it's it's very possible that that was part of the original text. But it might have been added by copyists it's because of the way... It works is like, for instance, if you have if you look at it, if you have something, I can give you an example of how this goes. Let's say you have something that was in the book of Galatians, which, by the way, some some people call Galatians like Romans light because it's got a lot of doctrines in it that are pretty similar to what is in the book of Romans. So let's say you are somebody who has read the book of Galatians or you were somebody who worked on making copies of the book of Galatians. Right. You've worked on that. And then now you're copying Romans. You're making a copy of, of one of the, the scrolls of Romans. And you get to a passage that's very similar to what was in Galatians. And then there's some phrase like this that was in Galatians. And you just, without even thinking about it, you just write it, you write it, you add it down because it was in the, it was in Galatians. And so to you, you're thinking, yeah, that probably goes here. And so you add it in. So that happened, by the way, uh, a lot. And that's why I say this this is, this is an example of text that could have been, I, a better way to phrase that, it could have been added by the copyist during the copying process. Maybe, maybe it was, maybe it's not. Best best text criticism says it was added, but I'm not sure. It might have been part of the original. Yes. He says such wonderful amazing things in Romans. I wonder how many times churches have to say say that again? Oh, I wonder that myself. It's, if some of the things, well, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a modern-day parallel so uh, be, here you are, you're Tertius, and you're writing these things down for, for Paul. And uh, and Paul starts to dictate it. I can imagine, as Jesse said, Tertius is sitting there going, wait, 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 wait. Say that again? <laughs> you know, <laughs> repeat that for me? Uh, because you're just blown away by some of the things that he's saying. I'll give you an example. If, you, if, if I were to give you the task, and I don't know if, how many of you have actually read this, but if I were to give you the task of making a copy of... Uh, Lewis Barry Chafer's systematic theology, some of that you would you would go through and you'd look at a sentence and you go, wait, 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 I got to read that again (laughs) because that's deep and astounding stuff, you know, because he I mean, Lewis Barry Chafer was able to write some things like that. And so I imagine that's probably true with Tertius that he was just amazed. Yes, sir. A good question, so the question was do, did, when Paul was writing this letter, was he writing to multiple churches, or was he writing to a single church? In this particular case, similar to what we have actually with first and Second Corinthians, he was writing to a particular church, fully knowing that that letter was going to be distributed. So, in other words, he was writing the letter to a to a church, a particular church in Rome. Understanding that it was going to be distributed to the other churches in Rome, which, by the way, were house churches almost certainly at the time, house churches there in Rome, as well as across the regions, right, that the letter would be distributed. So he was writing to a particular church. However, interestingly, it's interesting you ask that question, because when it comes to Galatians, that was not written to a particular church. Uh, There were several there are several cities in the Galatian region that he was writing this letter to all of those churches in Galatia. Uh, And that's similar to the book of James. The book of James was written to uh, the dispersed, the, the those that were dispersed as part of the diaspora. And he was writing to a whole handful of churches. In this particular case with Romans, he was writing to a particular church, but knowing full well that it was going to be distributed to other churches. Well, so so it's the home church idea, a lot of that came about just simply because uh, the whole idea of churches was not nearly as formalized then as it is now. Uh, that was one reason. So it was actually kind of the habit you know, habit of of those at the time to just meet in somebody's home. They would just gather and meet in somebody's home because they didn't have a formal place like the synagogue for the Jews to go and meet. Uh, But at the time of the writing of this letter, we really haven't gotten to the place where the persecution of the Christians is to the level where they were hiding away. You know, that that came later uh, where they wouldn't want to meet publicly and so on and so forth. But it but at the time, it was just, it, I mean, I, I can sort of give you an example. It's, to me, it's sort of like the way this church formed in the first place. We were a home Bible study, and it eventually grew into uh, a church that had its own building and that sort of thing. And that's the way a lot of the churches in the early church started is just a home gathering. Yeah, That's just kind of was the custom at the time. No, they couldn't go to the synagogue. You know, I mentioned the synagogue. I promise you, the the, the in general, the way the atmosphere was... Uh, at the time, they couldn't go meet in the synagogue, even though they were meeting on Sunday, right? They couldn't, they couldn't uh, meet in the synagogue because they wouldn't let them do it, right? They weren't going to let them use it. But they, didn't, they typically didn't have buildings that they could go and meet in. They were just meeting in someone's home, at, at least at this point in time. Now, later on, that becomes more formalized. You end up with, you know, actual church buildings. Uh, this added text is repeated from verse 20b, probably. That's how it would have happened. And shows up after verse 23, as we see here in some manuscripts and after verse 27 in others. And that's, by the way, another reason why it's a text question is it shows up in different places in different manuscripts. Now, again, I'm saying it as though it's for sure something that doesn't belong. But I throw out the possibility that it could have been. It could have been uh, in the original text somewhere. But it. uh, Turchis could have added that. He could have put that in there. Uh, that would have been a closing from him. Yeah, it could, have been, it could have been something that he put in uh, because of his wanting to send greetings to the church at Rome. And so he wrote that in there as something, you know, the, the, as, as a message to them. So it's entirely possible. That's why I say I've got it here as though it for sure doesn't belong. And that's what most of text criticism comes to that conclusion. But I, I open the possibility that it could have been there. It could have been in the original. Yeah. And the fact that it shows up in different places, that could just mean that, you know, there were copy, copy errors on, on those. But, I mean, I, you know, it's possible. It's possible it could have been in the original. But That's why we do text criticism is to try to figure that out the best we can. Even more interesting is the makeup of the last two chapters of this letter uh, and the close in verses 25 through 27. So because it's so interesting, the last two chapters, the way chapter 15 flows, and then it looks like it's the end of the book. And then we have chapter 16. But like I told you before, when I mentioned this, I think I might have mentioned this on Wednesday night. I don't know how many times. I mean, I can't even count how many times I've written an email to someone, especially if it's, you know, something longer than just, hey, I'll see you there or something like that. Right. If I'm writing an email that actually has some content in it and I'll write it and I'll typically step away and come back and reread it and make sure it says what I want it to say. And I can't tell you how many times. When I did that, I went, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm going to add this because I don't like the way that was done. And so I add on some more information. And so I think it's entirely possible that the first 15 chapters of this were written. And then Paul went back over it and looked at it and realized there was more that needed to be said, uh, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so chapter 16 was added. Uh, but that's, you know, it, as opposed to getting to text criticism with regard to this particular little verse uh, that's there. uh This is actually more of an interesting discussion talking about the last two chapters, 15 and 16. All right, then we get into a doxology. There's no way we're going to finish that, but we'll go ahead and get in, so we'll start on it. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ in accordance with the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested And by the scriptures of the prophets, in accordance with the commandment of the eternal God, has been revealed to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. So this is the actual conclusion here, the doxology. And again, we read that one. To him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, And the preaching of Jesus Christ in accordance with the revelation of the mystery. And this is an important statement he makes here. With the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. That's what a musterion is. is something that hasn't been revealed. The mystery of the church. But now is manifested. So in other words, this was not revealed previously but has been revealed now. And by the scriptures of the prophets. Oops, I'm sorry in accordance with the commandment of the eternal God, has been revealed to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Now, interestingly, I'm I'm, I'm going to go to the principles here in a second. Um, you can talk to individuals, for example, individuals who are trying to make a defense of Judaism would be a good example, make a defense of Judaism, who will try to make the claim that, whoa, so what you're saying is in the New Testament a whole new A whole new religion was established. No, that's not the case. This is where it's important to have a dispensational understanding of the scriptures, to look at what's going on in the scriptures and understand dispensations, stewardships. It's not that a whole new religion suddenly was revealed, that something new, completely different was established. It was a stewardship change, a stewardship change. One of the things that I tried to point out, I was having a debate with someone about this. One of the things I tried to point out is nowhere in the New Testament are you going to have somebody who's going to refute anything that was written in the Old Testament. In fact, how many times do we have Old Testament quotes over and over and over again? The Old Testament is quoted. Hold on a second. The Old Testament is quoted in regard to describing and explaining things that are New Testament concepts. Not only that. You have, for example, Paul in this letter spends a great amount of time talking about Israel, talking about their stewardship, talking about how they have not been discarded by God, that there's a future yet for Israel and so on and so forth. But yet in the same letter distinguishes that we, we in the church today, the mystery that is the church, we are not under law, but under grace. Now, that doesn't mean it's a brand new religion. It's something totally different. What it means is law was in effect for the stewardship of Israel. But in this new stewardship, we're not under law, but under grace. We don't we don't function under the Mosaic law because the Mosaic law was not given to us. It's not a change in the in the way in, in the religion, if you will, or the, the faith. It's not a change in the faith. That's a better way to say it. It's a change in stewardship. So does that make sense to all of you? It's a change in stewardship. And if that's why if you have a dispensational understanding of Scriptures, these things are easy and clear. But if you don't, you get confused and you start thinking that, that we're talking about something totally different. How can you understand why God had Jacob completely annihilate every living thing of the Canaanites and the remnant of the, the Nephilim if you don't understand Genesis 6? Well, that, so that's... Yeah, that's a different topic. So, but yeah, so that but that basically, scripture builds on scripture. Scripture builds on scripture, right? And that's what we're talking about. So when, when we get to when we get to the New Testament scriptures, they build on what's in the Old Testament. They don't. What, what did Jesus say? I didn't come to nullify, but to fulfill, right? <laughs> that's what he said. And so that's why it's important. And so if somebody tries to attack Uh, The New Testament scriptures, the writings of Paul and so on and so forth, if they try to attack those things, uh, make sure you you help them understand that Paul quotes Old Testament all the time and uses that as a foundation for what he's teaching. Uh, Principles here, as Paul wrote, the concluding verses of this letter uh, to the church at Rome, he penned a powerful summation of the message contained therein. In other words, these last three verses actually give an incredible kind of a summation of a lot of what was in here. Uh, The greatness of God, the importance of the true gospel message, the relevance of the teaching of Christ, the criticality of the mystery doctrines and the value of the Old Testament scriptures are emphasized. I think about that in these three verses. He talks about the greatness of God. He talks about the importance of the true gospel message. He talks about the relevance of the teachings of teaching of Christ the criticality of the mystery doctrines, this is so important, you can't, you can't function properly as a believer today without understanding the mystery doctrines. You're going you're to fall short. And that's one of the things we're going to see, by the way, in our Galatians study, is that if, if you fail in that regard, if you fail to have a true understanding of, of the change of stewardships, if you have a failure in terms of understanding the the things that are are different in terms of how we worship God today as opposed to how the people of Israel did. If you, if you fail to understand that they were called out as a nation, right? God called out the people of Israel as a nation from among the nations to be a nation unto him on this earth, whereas we have been called out as a body of believers from all nations. See, right there you've got a distinction. You have the stewards today are called out, as believers from all nations, we are not to be a nation. Our citizenship is heavenly. See, that's the, big, that's the big distinction. So it changes things. There is a distinction. But the criticality of the mystery doctrines, you cannot be a, a believer today properly worshiping God if you don't understand the mystery doctrines. The value of the Old Testament scriptures are emphasized. Again, not, not thrown away, but emphasized. The greatness of God. We'll get a start on this and then we'll have to stop. First of all, he is able to establish us. First Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. So that he may establish your hearts. Without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, establish your hearts. I mean, when we talk about being established by God, isn't that really what we're talking about? He establishes our hearts. That's what God's doing. He's establishing our hearts. Very important. He He is able to establish us in the faith. That's the key, right? To be established in the faith. What is it that we do? As believers, well, if you look around the room, we all have different quote-unquote occupations, right? We're engaged in different activities in our lives. If we were to go around and talk about that sort of thing, we would find out, you know what? No two of us is exactly the same in that regard. And yet all of us are being established in one faith. Being established in one faith together. And that's what God is doing. He's able to establish us. He's able to build us up. Acts 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. To build you up. How many times in, in the New Testament do you reckon that that message is given? It's a lot. The idea of being built up. You know, we, The fancy word we use for that, edification. We're being built up. Well, if all you're doing is being built up in terms of Raw knowledge, if that's what you're doing is accumulating knowledge, and that's as far as it goes, then are you really truly being built up in the faith? And the answer is no. Because knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If If you are being built up in nothing but raw knowledge, then you're just a Bible encyclopedia. It's something that needs to be real in your life. It's something that needs to be meaningful in the way that you think. And the way that you behave, the things that you say, and so on, it needs to be life-changing. If it's not, then it's just raw knowledge, uh, and that's as, if that's as far as it goes. Remember, we want we want gnosis to turn into epinosis. That's a full knowledge. We want knowledge uh, to become, be be accompanied by understanding. We want knowledge and understanding to become wisdom, and wisdom is the wisdom is the description of that which we know and understand that we have the ability to apply to our daily lives. And that does not happen if you're just merely listening to these things and remembering them in your mind. It has to be something that's being processed in your heart, in the accompaniment of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It has to be something that is vivid and real in your thinking. That to you it's more, it's literally, it's what the things that you learn from the Word of God are more real to you than this hymnal right here. The things of the word of God are more real to you than that book and the things that you see and feel and touch around you. It's got to be so vivid and so real that it's it's what changes the way you view the world around you. So we want to make sure that uh, we are being built up in the faith, not just uh, learning more, learning more things in terms of raw knowledge. We're actually being built up. We're going to come back. Uh, We'll look at this quickly and then we'll come back and pick up right back here. Uh, on this doxology section because we're running out of time. He is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. And and this is where I think we fail sometimes. Uh, In Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So in other words, what this is acknowledging is that we fall short In terms of our assessment of what God is able to do. Because in terms of how we think and what we ask. We are way short of what God is able to do. He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That tells me that whatever it is that I know about God. And however it is that I think about him. It still falls short of who he really is. And whenever I consider what he's able to do. In my life. It falls short. And. I believe that I've studied the word and have a very high opinion of God. And yet it still falls short because he's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that I ask or think. And then notice what it says, according to the power that works within us. Well, that certainly would be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that goes beyond that. I believe it includes the indwelling of the son and the indwelling of the father. We have all three members of Trinity at work in us. And we are—we have divine power. Well, tell me—tell me how much that is. You can't express it. There's no term you can use that can express it to the fullness of what it is, because God is infinitely powerful. That's what omnipotent means. Yes, sir. Well, I think the best way to break it down, the way, best way to break it down is to think of it in terms of first uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verses four through six, which talks about the the this. is Now, this goes back to basically a, a function that they have in our Christian walk, that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the giftedness. And I believe he's at work in us to enable us to use the gifts. Right. So he is the Holy Spirit is is uh, one of his primary functions is to is to facilitate the use of our spiritual giftedness. Uh, Jesus Christ is functioning as the head of the church, right? He's the head of the church, and he's the one who opens doors for ministries and closes doors, closes doors. Uh, so he's, uh, he's functioning as the head of the church. The Father is the one who produces the net results. In other words, as we engage in ministry and things are accomplished, remember Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, we actually learn that it is the Father that brings about the effects of our ministry as we are abiding in Christ, right? So there's a lot more that can be said about that, but that's a good general way of thinking of it, that the Holy Spirit is working with us, interconnected with our human spirit, effective, helping us to be effective in the use of our spiritual giftedness and our spiritual abilities, right? He, he gives us the ability to take advantage of all, the, our, all of our spiritual capacities. Again, Christ is functioning as head of the church and that includes his leadership, his guidance, his direction, all of those things. And then you have the Father who's working in us to make sure that as we are in fellowship and doing the things as unto the Lord, that those things are then effective, that, that makes them effective. That's just a general, that's kind of a short answer, but that kind of gives you a rough idea of some of the differences. Does that make sense? All right. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. And we'll come back on Wednesday night, and we, I believe we will finish up Wednesday night as we look at the, the rest of this on the doxology. We'll come back and, and review briefly and then pick back up and take off from there. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to finish up here. You were close, anyway, of finishing up what we have in the book of Romans. There's so much in this book. Uh, you know, it, it, there's, we, could, we could learn... From every verse that's in this, in this book, we can learn from every little bit of it. All your word is breathed by you and is profitable for our growth, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We know these things. Your, your word is powerful and changes us, and I thank you for that. And I thank you that when we consider the, the text question that we had in this section that we looked at, well, that verse, if it, if it was actually part of the original manuscript, there's something we can learn from that. It could have been a message from Tertius to the church at Rome. It could have been him expressing his own uh, gratitude and wanting to greet them with that message. We don't know if, if it was there or not. It could have been added by a copyist. But the reality of it is there's power even in that because it, it, it's, it's a copy of another verse. Even if it's not supposed to be there, it's a copy of another verse that has meaning and it's powerful. Help us to take what we hear and what we learn and not simply just have it banked in our mind somewhere. And it's just an accumulation of of raw knowledge. Help us, Father, to take these things in a true intake of what it is that we're hearing from your word, that it's something we dwell upon, something we place in our souls as a function of faith. We believe your word. We allow it to do its work in us. We allow it to transform us by the renewing of the mind. We allow it to conform us to the image of your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen.